Good morning, church. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother, Mary, was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Jesus, her husband, was faithful to the law, and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you will to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from the sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke, when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to him, and he gave him the name Jesus. Christmas preparations. Okay, my father, who's 85 and never shopped for anything online until about three months ago, four months ago, has done all his Christmas shopping. All of it. Every single bit of it. I, I'm astonished. I mean, this is teacher, an old dog, new tricks. Don't let him know I called him an old dog. Okay, but... Uh, this isn't going out live at all, is it? Uh, okay. He's not watching. Um, so isn't that amazing? Uh, yesterday, I did sit down and start writing some Christmas cards, all the ones I needed to post to relatives, and used up all the, used up all the cards and all the stamps. So um, I feel like I'm making progress. I'm getting somewhere. Um, so we're going to take a break this uh, next few weeks. We're going to take a break from our Mark Gospel of Mark series that we've been doing to focus on the message of the incarnation, of the fact that Christ came to be with us, and I think it's always good to do that. And I'm going to take a slightly different approach to the sermon today. Normally, we'd have a fair bit of discussion amongst ourselves or interaction from the group here. But uh, having reflected on last week's sermon, when we were all here wearing masks, it occurred to me that was actually quite challenging. Because you can't, it's very difficult to have a good conversation with someone in a group, and you have to lean in and listen. But that's the point of wearing a mask is not to be you know, breathing on each other. And similarly, with, co with comments from the group here, it's actually quite hard to hear. So this week, I'm not going to do so much of that. We're going to get into the scripture, and hopefully, as we listen along, we'll get something from it. And you should have a sermon handout as part of the newsletter this week with some questions. And if you can't hear me, or you get bored, you can always answer the questions for yourself and make some notes, okay? So you have some options uh, this morning. So let's look into our text again at these extraordinary events that you and I have heard, probably read, and we've read ourselves, and we've seen in films and on TV, time and time and time again, about this story of the birth of Jesus. And here we have Joseph's story. In Luke, we have Mary's version of the story, as in her perspective, the angel coming to her. But in Matthew, we have the perspective from Joseph's, through Joseph's eyes, as to what happened. So that's what's going on here. And if you think about it, this whole story of a, an angel coming to uh, Joseph and saying, your betrothed is, is a virgin and she's going to have a baby and it's going to be the Holy Spirit. And you'd have to think, what, who would want to make this up as, a, as the foundation story of a new religion? And if you're going to have a foundation story of a new religion, especially from a Jewish perspective, but you wouldn't, you wouldn't do this. This is not the way you'd make up your story. 
So the there are pagan birth stories of virgins giving birth in other cultures, um, but they're almost always a god coming down to have sex with that virgin or things like that. It's a very different environment. It's about the gods of, uh, the pagan gods lusting after the women of this earth. And they're very earthy stories, nothing like this kind of story. It is actually unique from what we understand of stories from the ancient past. And we have the origins of Jesus. How, this is how the birth of Jesus came about. That is the same language as Genesis, the birth, the origins. You could translate this perfectly legitimately. These are the origins, or these are, this is the genesis of Jesus Christ. We've got allusions, Mark chapter 1, with Genesis chapter 1, which we'll come back to in just a minute. So first of all, the setup. The setup to this story. The setup is Joseph's in for a shock. Yeah. Now, many of us here are parents, and perhaps you remember, if you're a, a father, perhaps you remember the moment when your wife came to you and said, we're going to have a baby. I remember when, Lyd uh, when Penny became pregnant with Lydia, or at least well, I remember when she told me about it, and she told, she told me, I have something to tell you. And I thought, okay, but I could tell it was something different to the normal, like, I don't know, I think I found a new good television show for us to watch or something. I could tell it was something different to that because she said, let's go upstairs. I said, okay. We were sharing a house with some people at the time. So we went upstairs and we went into the bedroom. She said, sit down, sat down on the bed. And then she told me, I'm pregnant. And I, was, I had the biggest grin on my face ever. Wow. I mean, that was a shock, a pleasant shock. Of course, I didn't know that she was going to tell me that. But what about this? I mean, this is the shock of all shocks for Joseph, right? They're not married yet. They are betrothed. She is, as it says here, pledged uh, to be married to Joseph. Now, in that culture, what that means is you're not spending any time together at all. You're not going on a date the whole 20th, you know, modern Western idea of going out for dinner with your girlfriend, your boyfriend, or doing that kind of thing, that just doesn't happen in that day and age. There's no privacy in that period. I mean, it's incredibly challenging. You've got uh, everybody's doors are open. It's a, it's a village set up. Everybody knows everybody's business. You are not spending time alone together. They may not have hardly even met before this. It's quite probable that his family and her family made an agreement Okay, we're, that you guys can get married. They're like, okay, we get married, fine. And, and then it's arranged, and the marriage proper is going to happen at some point in the future. Could well be a year in the future. But they are, they are pledged. And in that culture, if you are pledged, it's like you're in a contract the same as marriage. So if you're going to break this engagement, it is a divorce in the way that we might understand a divorce. So it's a very solemn agreement. You are going to get married. There's actually sort of no choice now. It's all set up. And in this context, Joseph is told that woman is going to have a baby. She is pregnant. She's found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. What a shock for this man. Now, Joseph was probably, we can't be absolutely sure, but in that culture, most women became betrothed at the age of 12 or 13. Now, that would be a bit of a shock for some of us if we had had our marriage arranged at the age of 12 or 13. Um, some of us here, uh, we have children in classes back there who'd actually by now be engaged. Um, and if you were Joseph, you were probably 18, 19, 20 years old. So again, some of us teenagers, we might, we might well be uh, engaged at this point, uh, ready to, to marry in a short time. So this is the point. So imagine, imagine the big shocks in your life and being, say, if you're a, a bloke here, 
you were 18, 19, 20, and this happening to you. I mean, it would be tough at any point in life, but at this age, I mean, how do you get your head around it? So that's what's going on with Joseph here. And we also see that the Holy Spirit is being profiled here. It's through the Holy Spirit. So we're being told this is about God at work in humankind. This is what is going on. And Joseph, how does he react? I think Joseph is a very impressive character. How does he react? It says, because he was faithful to the law. So he wanted to divorce her. He felt he had to because he's faithful to the law. And in those days, if there was unfaithfulness, and she was pregnant, then uh, you would divorce your fiancé. And of course, the Old Testament allowed for stoning, um, for unfaithfulness, but it wasn't carried out very often. And in the days of Joseph, the Romans wouldn't allow the Jews to do this. So, I mean, sometimes it might happen, but it would have been illegal. But nonetheless, there would be a divorce, and he wants to do it quietly because he doesn't want to disgrace her. And even though he, it is ultimately, he understands it's by the Holy Spirit, still, when you find out your fiancé is unfaithful, um, you might be forgiven for not caring whether she is disgraced or not. And yet Joseph has a kind heart and wants her to be not shamed by what is going on. He's an impressive chap. But then the angel comes on the scene, appears to him in a dream, and tells him, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary home to be your wife. Because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. What a message to get in a dream. What a message to get from God. Another shock. He's had the shock of finding out she's pregnant, and now he's having the shock of having a personal encounter with an angel. And if you know your Old Testament, that could be pretty scary. I mean, when angels appeared, people fell to the ground in the Old Testament. Sometimes it was the equivalent of meeting God. And sometimes it's said when angels appear, God was, was there, or God was, was speaking. And often when angels appeared in the Old Testament, they appeared in judgment. More often, in many ways, than, than promise and hope. It was often judgment. We think about the angel that, that killed 186,000 of the enemy. Is it 186? That's the number that sticks in my mind. One angel killed 186,000 uh, opposition troops. And this is the kind of being that Joseph is having a conversation with in a dream. Another shock. Quite scary. And the words are important. Do not be afraid to take Mary home. Do not be afraid. Why does the angel tell him not to be afraid? Because he is terrified. He's terrified about the responsibility. He's terrified about this visitation from the angel. My goodness. But the angel tells him, this is about the Holy Spirit. God is involved. Yes, you might be terrified. Yes, you might be shocked. Yes, your world might have been turned completely upside down, but God is doing it. God is at work. Just like in Genesis, as we talked about earlier, the Spirit of God hovering over the waters creatively in Genesis 1. Or Psalm 33, verse 6, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, the starry host by the breath of his mouth. And often the Spirit is synonymous with the breath of God. He made everything. He's created before. 
He's creating something astonishing now. So he gets instructions. The instructions are, take Mary home as your wife and name him. Give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Take her home and give him this name. It's a little humiliating for a husband to be told what to do by anybody else regarding his wife and his children. But Joseph accepts it. There's a humility in him that doesn't fight what God is doing. It's extraordinary. And we're told here, of course, that Joseph is to give him this name, Jesus, but, and also that he is to save his people from their sins. And so, thinking about Messiah, the Jewish people of the day were expecting a Messiah to save them from the Romans, not save them from their sins. Yet this son of David has come as Messiah to save from sins, his people. And of course, his people is, includes us. Not understood at the time, but that is what God had in mind. The name Jesus is the same essential name as the word Joshua, as the name Joshua from the Old Testament. Meaning, you could translate it a number of ways, but meaning essentially God is saving or God saves or God rescues, God to the rescue. And this is Jesus come to this earth, God to the rescue, to save us from the slavery of our sins. There's a promise of salvation. And then in the next mini paragraph, we have Matthew coming in as a narrator, as a commentator. A bit like you're watching a, one of your favorite shows on Netflix or something, and you have dialogue between characters, and then that fades, and then a narrator voice comes in. If you've got a narrator voice coming in here, all this took place, verse 22, to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. God with us. So what do we have here? Well, a few things. Uh, I'm going to get slightly technical for a minute, but not for too long, so bear with me. All right? But I'm going to, there'll be a, a reason for this. So Matthew and the early church recognized that this quote, which is from Isaiah chapter 7, referred to the Messiah. It wasn't terribly clear in the time of Jesus that other people may have thought about that passage as referring to the Messiah. It wasn't, wasn't necessarily understood that way, but looking back on it, Matthew and the, and the early church saw in this passage, as in many others, oh look, Isaiah was talking about Jesus. Now he wasn't only talking about the Messiah, but he was talking about the current situation at the time, and Isaiah was the 8th century BC, and was prophesying during the reign of Ahaz, King Ahaz. And he's talking about a son to come, and that was a son that was to come at that time, born of a young woman, is the Hebrew word, but then they saw it as referring also to Jesus being born of a virgin. Now, I'm going to, the technical part here is this. Some people cast doubt on the Bible and the virgin birth because they say that in the Isaiah passage in Hebrew, the word for young woman is young woman, not virgin, whereas Matthew sees it as referring to a virgin and a virgin birth, and so there's a contradiction there. And just to say this for the moment, and we can talk about it later if you'd like, but there are good reasons for understanding that Matthew is correct in his interpretation of Isaiah 7 and saying actually it is about a virgin. And the part of the reason is this, that the, word, the Hebrew word used for young woman in that passage in Isaiah 7 is translated as virgin in other parts of the Old Testament and would be the wrong word to use if you were referring to somebody who was already married as a, as, and had had intercourse. 
because if you were using the normal word for mother or wife, you'd use mother or wife rather than young woman. In the context of Isaiah, you wouldn't use young woman, you'd use wife or mother. So therefore, the use of young woman, although it is young woman, not virgin, implies virginity. And therefore, Matthew's use of it by the Greek translation of the Septuagint of virgin makes sense because it does fit with Isaiah in ways that uh, we might not otherwise think. And the other part of this is that in Luke chapter 2, Mary uh, questions the angel as to how can this be since I am a virgin? She knows she's a virgin. So I think she would know. You know what I'm saying? So it seems clear that A, she is a virgin, and B, that it is legitimate to use the Isaiah 7 passage referring to a young woman as referring to a virgin and the way that Matthew used it. If that didn't make sense, I'm sorry, but you can come and talk to me later or look it up and study it for yourselves. There's plenty of information out there, but it is definitely not a contradiction in the way that some people accuse it of being a cast out on the story. Right, now, getting back to the uh, wording in the passage here, in some ways I hope are helpful and applicable. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel. And I think this is the heart of this whole passage. Emmanuel, God with us. Emmanuel, God with us. They will call him Emmanuel. You call him Jesus, and the people he's come to save will call him Emmanuel. Seems to sum up so much to me of who Jesus is. Savior and God with us. The one who rescues and the one who is with us. The one who does for us what we cannot do for ourselves and the one who shows us the heart and the character of the one who sent Jesus to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Savior and God with us. They will call him Emmanuel. So I've entitled this lesson, The Two Names of Jesus. Of course, Jesus, some people say Jesus Christ, as in Christ is his surname. Well, no, that's not right. That's a description. He's Messiah. But and I, Emmanuel isn't really his name as a family name, but it's a name people came to give him because they saw this is what and who he was by the way he taught and the way he lived. It reminds me of the fact that in Acts, you may remember, that other people called the followers of Jesus Christian. Acts 11, 26. When people saw how these people lived, these followers of Jesus, they gave them the label, the name, the descriptor, Christian, little Christ. And this this is then how, isn't this then how we hope we live? That we live in such a way that other people would say, you know what, I know your first name is Victor, I know your first name is Sarah, but I'm going to give you another name, and I'm going to give you the name Christian. You are no longer Sarah Watkins. You are Sarah Christian. Watkins as well, maybe. We'll believe it in there, but you're not Victor Musaka, but you're Victor Christian Musaka. Like a nickname. And the thing is about Jesus is that the way he lived made it so obvious that he was from God that people would say, you are God with us. And I wonder whether it's helpful for us, for you and me to think about, is the way I live, lived in such a way that it would be obvious to people that I had faith in Christ? Or at least certainly faith in something that would make them ask me, what, there's something different about you. There was obviously something different about Jesus, and there were lots of reasons why there were different things about Jesus, but one of the things that was, dis- 
was distinct about Jesus is they said, we've never seen anything like this. God is with us. God is here with us. You know, people debate the deity of Jesus and that kind of issue. But the people that saw him and heard him thought, the only way we can describe this man is God is here with us. No one's ever lived like him. No one has ever, will ever live like him. He is our inspiration for all that we do, all the ways we serve, all the ways that we love, all the ways that we sacrifice. It's all because God has come to be with us. Ultimately, then, to take us home, but with us. What an incredible thing. They will call him Emmanuel. When I was at university, uh, I was a year older than the rest of my year. My, my, uh, my year. I'd taken a year off, year out. and I, so I, I was 19 when I got to university. All my other friends were 18. And they gave me a nickname after a while. They used to call me Uncle Malcolm. <laughs> I was only one year older. <laughs> but it was enough. And partly, I think, because sometimes they'd come and talk to me about stuff, you know. I'd have these women, 18-year-old women, coming to me and talking to me about the problems with their boyfriend. Like I was Uncle Malcolm. And most of the time I was thinking, why don't you dump him and come and be with me and be my girlfriend? That'd be better. That's before I met Penny, of course. I mean, that's, you know, once I met Penny, that was a whole different story. But I, I don't know if I like that nickname or not, to be perfectly honest. But, but, we, but that, that's what happens when you live the Christian life. You remind people of Jesus. So what does he do? He wakes up and he does what the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary home to be his wife. But he did not consummate the marriage. He had the right to, but he didn't until she gave birth to a son and he did what he was told. Gave him the name Jesus. He did what he could do and then later as Jesus lived, he became and did what he could do. So a couple of thoughts for us to ponder. The first I see in this passage is this. God has a habit of messing with our lives. God has a habit of messing with my life. I expect he has a habit of, now and again, messing with your life. You've got things lined up. You've got things organized. You know where you're going with your career, with your uh, romantic relationships, with your children, with your finances, with your health, with where you live, with all kinds of things. We've got our plans. But the problem with plans is, they're very shaky, except we don't think they are a lot of the time. But they really are very shaky. And God comes in and says, you know what? That plan's fine, but I've got a better one. And then the tendency might be to say, excellent, God. I think it's a great thing. You've got a better plan for me. I like the sound of that. And then he says, yeah, but you, you won't like it. It is better, but you won't like it. I mean, do you think Joseph would rather have had this plan for, for getting married than the original plan? Surely not. But it was a better plan. It was a better plan for humanity, but it was a better plan for him and Mary. He didn't know it, and I doubt he felt that way. That's why the angel had to say to him, don't be afraid. I wonder whether God's been messing with your life recently, and whether you're giving in, or whether you're fighting it. God messes with our lives. Are you open to God's crazy ideas? Are you open to God doing some strange and disturbing things in 2022? Wouldn't you like a calmer year next year? Yeah, I mean, you know, not having to wear the masks, being safe from the COVID stuff, 
I mean, wouldn't you like a calmer year? Don't we all talk about that, really? I would, I would really like a calmer year. I would like a quieter year. I would, I would like a less challenging year. But I'm not sure I'm going to get it. I'm not sure any of us are. And I'm not sure if I got it, it would be good for me. <coughs> oh, I'm not saying we should value things that are a bit mad and crazy. And that's not what I'm saying. But I, I do think we have to understand that God messes things up in the way that we see it, messes them up for good, for us and for other people. I would suggest a good prayer for the month of December is to prepare ourselves for next year by praying, God, help me be open to whatever your plans are for me, our church, whatever those plans are, God, let me be open to your plans, especially when I don't like them. Let me open up my heart. I think that's the first thing I see in this. The second thing I see is that God wants the young people to enjoy his love and see his power in their lives and understand his purpose. Mary was a preteen or a teen. Joseph was probably a late teenager. So I speak briefly to our wonderful teenagers here and say, God wants to work in your life. He's a, he is a work in your life, actually. But it's, not too, it's never too young to start seeking God and going on an adventure with God. I think it's a sad thing that sometimes the Christian life can be seen as dull and boring when actually, I truly believe, it's the most adventurous life you could live. It was an adventure for Mary. It was an adventure for Joseph. It was an adventure for the followers of Jesus, some who were probably teenagers, like the, God, the Apostle John, we reckon. It's never too young to start seeking, never too young to start experiencing the love of God, the power of God, and find the purpose of God for your life. Never too young. Maybe Christmas time is a time to do some Bible reading, do some praying, asking questions of people around you that have understanding about the Christian faith that could help you. Why not take a break from school and instead go to um, Jesus school or something for the Christmas period and learn more about him? The third thing I see in this passage is that God wants all people to be set free. He will set his people free. He will save them from their sins. Can we find a way to bless people with the message of Jesus around the Christmas period? People who don't know Jesus, can we find a way to do that? And the fourth thing is God wants all people to know him and walk with him, God with us. How could you improve your experience of walking with Jesus over this Christmas time? How could you grow deeper in your walk with him? And finally, fifthly, you and I can see God at work in our lives personally and corporately as a church. We can see that, but only by trusting obedience. It's only through trusting obedience. This is how Joseph sees the power of God at work in his life. He takes God's word at to heart, takes Mary as his wife, and gives Jesus the name Jesus, and then continues with his life. Is there something that you've had nagging at you that you know God would have you do? Something, some area of obedience and trust that has been niggling away in the back of your mind. Maybe there's someone to forgive. Someone who's hard to forgive. Someone who doesn't deserve forgiveness. But maybe there's someone you know it would be good for you to forgive. Perhaps there's someone you 
No, it would be good to reach out and love, even though they're hard to love, especially around Christmas, but sometimes around family and friends who we otherwise the rest of the year would have a good excuse not to be around. They're hard to love, but at this time, maybe now is the time to embrace them with a Christian love and offer them Christian love, even though it's hard. Or maybe we need to deal with some anger or resentment towards God because things this year haven't turned out the way we had hoped or thought. It'd be great to resolve these things before we get to Christmas and the new year. Whatever it is, is there some area of life where some trusting obedience would go a long way to giving you the peace and the joy that only Christ can give? Joseph is an amazing person. And sometimes we don't think enough about him. I mean, the focus tends to be on Mary, and understandably, and that's fine. But Joseph is a, a wonderful man of faith and courage. And perhaps we could do some more study, uh, personally, on his life and on his heart, the little that we see in the Scriptures. So to wrap up, and before we take uh, communion, the representations of the body and blood of Jesus, let's think about this. The Christmas story begins with scandal. An unmarried, pregnant teenager. And the story of Jesus ends in scandal. A criminal crucified on a cross. That's seen from one perspective. But seen from another perspective, the grace of God and the power of God is manifested in Mary and in Joseph's life so that he could save his people from their sins and give us victory over sin and death so we need not fear the future. And as we take the bread and wine, what we're doing is we are reminding ourselves of the wonderful love of God that he would come to live with us. Emmanuel. God with you and me and anybody who wants him. God with us. All of what happens here is because God wants to set us free. He wants us to know him. These two names of Jesus. I have to take some time this week to pray and meditate on the meaning of these. Saving us from our sins and God with us. Jesus and Emmanuel. Let's pray together.